Very good morning to you. If you're watching online today, wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for tuning in wherever you are uh, around uh, Newcastle, around Australia, maybe around the world. Um, it's a joy to have you with us. And we hope that this morning's service, uh, even though you're not with us in person, feels somewhat like you are, that you feel welcome and part of the, the, the family here this morning. Uh, if you are here in person, welcome to you as well. It's so lovely to have you. We have, uh, I think, some visitors with us. So uh, let me extend my own welcome to you. My name is DJ. Uh, I'm on the pastoral team here, and uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, I hope you also uh, feel both welcome and that something out of this morning's service was really helpful to you. We would love to get to know you more uh, and uh, journey with you, uh, understand wh where you're at and how we can be of, of service to you at this point in your, in your life and your journey through life and in faith. Uh, so please do make yourself known to us. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, and if you're here uh, for the first time in a, in a while, uh, or you've come in from another service, uh, the evening service, for example, then welcome to you as well. Lovely to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. If you could go back in time and talk to your 12-year-old self, what would you say? If you go back to when you were, say, 12 Talk to your 12-year-old self. What would you say? Rugby's important, but not that important. <laughs> For those of you at home, AJ said rugby's important, but not that important. Um, looks like you've got past that uh, idolatry or something there, AJ. No. Well, if I could go back in time, mine would be think smaller, but aim higher. Let me explain that a little bit. I've got this flashbulb memory from when I was 12 year, year old. I was in year six at Ross Hill Public School in Inverell, Northern New South Wales. And our class teacher, Mr. Lewis, had set us, we were getting towards the end of year six. And Mr. Lewis had set us this writing task to write down our dreams and our hopes for when we were growing up, when we were adults. And I took the task really seriously. I thought and I thought, I'm thinking, you see. I thought and I thought, oh, what should I say? Some of my classmates were writing down world peace. Or the politically aware uh, classmates in year six at the time were maybe thinking end of the Cold War, which sort of shows my age a little bit. Nuclear disarmament. And the best that I could come up with in that context, my highest hope as a 12-year-old boy was not rugby, but this. <laughs> the Porsche 911 Carrera Coupe. Worth a lot more now than it was even back then. And it was worth a pretty penny back then. Now, just in my defense, I came from a, a poor farming fa family. We were driving around at the, that stage in a beat up old ute with bald tires. We lived in a three bedroom fibro I asbestos, uh, uh, teaching houses, teaching housing, teachers housing commission house, get it right in a moment, across the road from the school where my mum had had to take a job when our farm had failed and, and our dreams had been, been, of farming had, had been dashed. So a Porsche 911 Carrera Coupe seemed like the most tantalising object or aim that my teeny teenage brain could come up with at that stage in my life. So if I could go back, I would say to my 12-year-old self, Think a little bit smaller on the car budget front, son. Hyundai Santa Fe will, goes just fine. But also aim a little higher. Otherwise, one day you might just end up a, pa a pastor or something. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. 
I'm just joking. Being a pastor is a high calling and a wonderful privilege, and I, I take my hat off to all who've, uh, who've made it their life's calling. Anyway, how about you? What would you say to your 12-year-old self? Maybe you aimed too low then too, if rugby was your whole world. Maybe you never dreamed where life has taken you today. And let's be honest, some of us are still closer to 12 than uh, others of us. But maybe also your dreams back then have been dashed. Maybe your high hopes for life have failed to find fulfilment. Well, what about as a world right now? What do you think are the high hopes that we have had for the world in which we live, collectively, as a society? What are some of those hopes in years gone by that have failed to materialise? Last week we talked about hope and how there seems to be a, a short supply of hope in our world today. Well, this week I want to kind of flip the topic around a little bit and talk about what our highest hopes are as individuals, but also as a society. And in this series at God You Can Believe In, in recent weeks, we've been looking at the Easter stories through the lens of faith, hope, and love. And a few weeks ago, talking about faith, we looked at how Jesus, though, according to this passage from Philippians, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but or, or used to his own advantage, as the NIV says. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's at the heart of the Easter story. But we saw that this is the first half of a passage, possibly a poem or an early Christian hymn or worship song, which Paul includes in his letter to the church in the then Macedonian city of Philippi. And we saw that in contrast to most ancient and many modern leaders who grasp for power, who strive for affirmation and acclamation, this hymn sees Jesus go in reverse. He sets aside his power his position, his glory, and his greatness. And he voluntarily steps down into humiliation, injustice, intolerance, violence, terror, and a tortuous death. And he does so for the world which would itself crucify him. And we said that whether you believed or not in a God, this was a remarkable set of claims about God. It's a portrait of God who is not a moral monster, as Richard Dawkins would have it, but one who refuses to use power for his own ends, who sets it aside, giving himself only for the good of others, indeed others who would hate him. But of course, the passage, if you've been around church for a while, if you've read this before, you'll know that the passage in Philippians doesn't finish here. It isn't the end of the story. Because if it was, it may portray a God we could relate to, a God we could warm to, like, maybe even believe in. But is it a God that we could find hope in? What good is a dead and buried 
deity after all. So today, as promised, we'll return to the passage, specifically uh, to the second half of this poem or hymn, whatever it might have been. In the meantime, we've looked at how an empty tomb following Jesus' crucifixion launched a revolution. Not a human revolution, but a divine revolution. A resurrection revolution which overthrows not human enemies, but the enemies of humans. Evil, injustice, and even death itself. And we saw that hope in such short supply in our world today is given new life by Jesus' own resurrection and new life, which in turn foreshadows a cosmic resurrection, as we saw alluded to in the Bible Project video earlier, the making anew of creation at the end of this age. And we saw that the anticipation of this cosmic renewal, this remaking uh, of the universe, far from offering us what Karl Marx has called the false hope of pie in the sky when you die, offers the hope of a deadline on death, an end to evil, and the victory of peace over violence. And the Bible Projects video, which we, we just saw a little earlier, helped recap that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, human beings can have both the hope of rebirth as new people and that the whole universe will be liberated from slavery to decay and death. Well, today I want to come back slightly to a similar theme, but from a different angle. And before I do, though, let's take a, a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of some alternative high hopes that are doing the rounds right now in our society. In recent weeks, I've been uh, getting my head around this book. Anybody come across this one? Yuval Noah Harari. He's an Israeli author, historian. You might have seen, perhaps, this book, his earlier work, Sapiens, as in Homo sapiens. Well, in this, uh, this latest of his books, Homo Deus, uh, by the way, if your Latin is a little rusty, uh, Deus is Latin for deity or God. Uh, you probably knew that already. But this uh, Homo Deus literally means man-god or God-man, something like that. Um, by the way, I don't know if you know that Homo sapiens, anybody know the meaning of Homo sapiens? means, well, human beings, right? But the literal Latin meaning is um, wise man. It's true. <laughs> so next time AJ shares at staff meeting, I'm going to say, a homo sapien once said... <laughs> Get on you, AJ. In this book, um, Harari turns from history, which he looks at, the history of humanity in sapiens, he turns to the future of humanity uh, as a historian, maybe stepping outside his you know, area of expertise a little bit, I don't know. Harari is very dismissive of faith and religion itself. Instead, he argues, in brief, that there is no longer any need to turn to the old gods of religion because humanity itself has now progressed to the stage where it more or less has mastery over all the old challenges about which humanity once turned to the gods to help control. In summary, uh, Famine, plague, and war. Small problem. That was like so 2016. Probably didn't see 2020 coming. But he says this, to, to use his own words, 
At the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. In the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems haven't gone completely or been completely solved, but they have been transformed from the incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god anymore or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing so. Then comes 2020, and now 2022, where famine is again, uh, well, raging in some places and looking to spread, and I don't need to go into the other things. We don't have time uh, or interest to, to unpack all of his arguments there, but I do just kind of want to highlight three key movements that he sort of mashes together in this book. I mean, it's, it's quite an interesting read. You're probably not going to agree with uh, a, a lot in there, um, or, or maybe most of it, but it's still an interesting read uh, to do him justice. But he kind of mashes together these three, if you like, philosophical movements or ideas um, that we're going to just look at really, really quickly. Uh, using his own title, Homo Deus, I'm going to refer to these three different ideas in similar fashion. So we'll start with his, which is Homo Deus. And this refers, if you want to know the technical name, some of you will know this already, of course, um, if you've studied philosophy or uh, culture, society and culture and things. But this uh, is a movement called transhumanism. I'll explain that more in a minute. So Homo Deus. But the one that comes before that is what I call Homo Hooray Us. It's humanism, the movement of humanism, which I'll unpack a little bit more. And just to round out the three, Homo Horaeus, Homo Deus, and Homo Oonomoros, which refers to the movement called post-humanism. And you'll get a sense of what that might be, even from the name. But let's look at those just really briefly. Homo Horaeus, or humanism. Humanism is the belief that humanity is central to the cosmos. It actually came from Christian origins, but today, secular humanism focuses on humanity without God. Humanism's hope is based on human progress, that humanity can overcome all ills like famine, plague, and war, and ascend to a man-made utopia, reflected somewhat in Harari's perhaps premature claims that we talked about before. Uh, Of course, those things have turned out to be more resilient and more complex uh, than I think he perhaps allowed for. So while humanism has for centuries, and for some even today, promised much in terms of hope, and while the world has undoubtedly made great progress in some spheres, humanism's great blind spot in, in my analysis is, as recent events have shown us, there is a fundamental system error in the human heart, in human beings themselves, which continue to undermine the progress that we otherwise are making. Selfishness, greed, lust for power, grasping at power, lust for people, lust for gratifications of all sorts remain somehow hardwired into us. Humanism as a worldview, therefore, doesn't seem to have, at least in my assessment, an adequate solution to the problem of the human heart. Progress alone can't solve it. Education alone won't solve it. Because as C.S. Lewis once said, if you educate a devil, all you get up, 
All you end with is an educated devil. You don't end up with an angel or uh, something transformed. So that brings us to the second of these ideas. Oops, sorry, I had a summary slide there for you. Humans are masters of the universe. We will one day conquer all challenges. More education is the answer. Hooray for us. So that brings us to the second one uh, and the title of Harari's book, Homo Deus or Transhumanism. That refers to the idea of transcending humanity. Transcending humanity, transhumanism. And this idea, uh, if I can find my notes again, this idea in broad brushstrokes argues that the technological and medical advances of the 20th and 21st centuries will soon allow us to transcend humanity's inherent limitations using technology and medical advancements to enhance our species and uh, overcome such tiresome interruptions to our immortality such as illness, ageing and death. Those are just, as Harari puts it, technical issues with the human machine and we're well on our way to finding technical solutions to those technical problems that cause ageing, illness and death. So much so that soon, according to Harari and humanism more broadly, we will be able to leave behind the species Homo sapiens and evolve into godlike transhumans, i.e. Homo Deus. In sum, transhumanism offers the tantalising prospect of immortality, or more correctly, amortality. That is the idea that we don't need to die unless we're you know, struck by an accident or killed in a war or something like that. The human body itself, um, enhanced by medical uh, breakthroughs and uh, integration of technology, won't need to die. It could live forever. So it offers us that tantalising prospect, along with the idea of an immense upscaling of human cognition, integration of virtual realities and artificial intelligence, giving us supersized mental, physical and psychological powers. Sounds kind of fun. The dark side of this hope, however, as even Harari recognises in the book, is that very likely only the world's wealthy will be able to afford such upgrades. Meaning the poor, and perhaps even the ordinary man and woman, are likely to become inferior and even dispensable creatures, treated in the same way that we treat many animals now, in his argument. What's more, he suggests, such beings won't technically be unkillable, uh, just not subject to death by natural causes, as I said. So most likely, even he anticipates that Homo Deus will live with immense anxiety about being hit by a bus or killed in a war or something like that. So it holds out the promise of immortality but can't deliver it, nor can it deliver us again from the problem of the human heart, greed for power, our propensity to selfishness, uh, injustice and equality are likely to be continued under that scenario. And nor does it deal with the perversion of power by political leaders uh, which can always be used to oppress and harm others. Anyway, the third and final movement, uh, the one I call Homo Oonomorus, or posthumanism, as it's known technically, this, in Harari's view, is, is less of a hope than a nightmare scenario, at least one which raises serious concerns even for him. 
Basically, post-humanism arises when human beings already being regarded in some spheres as little more than uh, organic algorithms, data points, people to exploit for their data so that we can sell things to them and that kind of thing. Sound a bit familiar already? Uh, that will reach a point where, where human beings, these organic algorithms, uh, are left behind by artificial intelligence, technological advances, and a new religion he calls dataism, which values data at the expense of organic life, love, and civil human liberties. And either human beings simply merge into a great data nirvana, or become extinct, being no longer necessary to the self-perpetuating march of technology and progress. Now, I won't spend more time on that. You can read either this book or, or there's plenty of other post-human uh, works out there. Now, there's even academic journals about um, post-humanism, etc. However, we could say that this proposal may solve the problem of the human heart, but in a pretty drastic way. It eliminates humanity in the process. Thus, the problem here is whether the human drive to be immortal and to continue to advance without stopping to ask serious ethical questions could lead to our own extinction. I would suggest that the fundamental problem with all of these movements is none really deal with the deeper problems of the human heart, at least not without destroying humanity in the process. Hence, they leave its world, our world, its presidents, parliaments and potentates infected by the problem of evil. So, I'm going to leave you to make up your own mind about which of those seems preferable. But all that brings us back to the Bible passage that I referred to earlier, which we're going to look at for a little while now. This is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And remember in the next little bit that Philippi was a Roman military colony established by uh, Octavian, who was later the Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor. That's just a little bit of context. So let's look again at this. We've read through this already. That's the first half that we looked at a couple of weeks. So let's skip on to this part of the passage, which we really want to focus. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, this is Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're not a person of faith uh, or uh, you're new to faith or something and, and this is new to you, then thank you for journeying with us as we explore this this morning. And I hope again that there's something helpful in this uh, as, we, as we discuss it. For some of us who are regulars in church, however, we've likely heard this passage so often that we don't hear it with the full force that it had on its original hearers. When Paul and the early Christians who wrote this poem, along with those who sang it, spoke of Jesus as Lord and Saviour, undoubtedly they would have understood it on some level in a personal religious sense. That is, that Jesus has died for their sins and risen for their own resurrection. But they'd have also understood it that they were making a much bigger, bolder, and more dangerous claim. Let's take a look at it line by line briefly. God exalted Jesus to the highest place. Here, the original text, the original Greek that it was written in, uses this, for the word nerds, compound verb. 
the verb for exalt, heightened by the addition of hooper, which means highest or to um, to uh, uh, augment, to in, to enhance. In other words, uh, what this is saying in the Greek is that Jesus was exalted to the supreme position or to the highest possible degree and gave him the name that is above every other name. Well, what name could that be? What name is there that is to which there is no higher name? It really can only be the name of God, the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God for the Jewish people, translated in Greek uh, versions of the Old Testament as Kyrios, which is translated in English as Lord. So this hymn is alluding to the fact that Jesus has been given the name Lord Kyrios Theos, God himself. So God bestows on Jesus in this moment of exaltation his own name and authority. That at the name of Jesus, next line, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This seems to refer to the angelic beings themselves, the angels themselves, and every living being, including those in Philippi who were causing suffering to the church there in the Philippians. So, so this hymn is reassuring them that in their suffering, uh, those who are persecuting them will eventually also confess the name of Jesus. And also the reference to uh, those under the earth uh, is probably a reference to even the dead themselves. So that even the dead will somehow have occasion and opportunity to bow to Jesus. And then every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord means even those who currently confess Caesar as the Lord and indeed Caesar himself will one day confess that Christ is his Lord and their Lord. Indeed, if we compare this sort of language, the language of Lord and bowing and confessing, we find that these terms uh, are in common use in the context in which this church in their military Roman colony finds itself. For example, we have historical inscriptions that are extant today, which use similar terms, the terms that we're familiar with from the New Testament, and apply them uh, to the various Roman emperors, Caesars and emperors. Julius Caesar, for example, is referred to in various inscriptions as God or Theos in the Greek, and Saviour or Soter, the God and Saviour of the inhabited world. Augustus, who was uh, Octavian, who was Julius Caesar's adopted son and reigned from about 27 BC, i.e. when Jesus was born, he was reigning. He is referred to as the Son of God, God from God, Saviour and Benefactor. Tiberius, who reigned when Jesus was crucified, was also referred to as Son of God in historical inscriptions that we still have. And Nero, who reigned when Paul was writing to the Philippians, and perhaps when Paul himself was executed, Nero um, had no ego problem. 
uh, he, he, there are lots of inscriptions to, to uh, Nero that call him things like Lord or Kyrios, Savior and Benefactor, the good God, the son of the greatest gods, the Lord of the whole world. Well, anyway, you get the picture. These are terms that are commonly being ascribed to the emperor. And Paul writes to the Philippians that Jesus is the true Lord of the world. That Jesus is the king over even emperors. That Jesus has been exalted to the highest place, given the highest name and the highest authority. And that one day, even the Caesars on the throne in Rome will bow their knee and confess that he is the true Lord. These were men who were striving to be known as homo deus, God-men, sons of God, not through technological enhancement, but through their own power and, and greed and lust for victory and honour and glory. Well, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, this is a long quote, sorry, I do that, apologies. Um, Thank you for your patience. By the time of our letter, that is Philippians, he says, the primary titles for the emperor were Kyrios and Soter, as we've already seen. Not only so, but the cult of the emperor, honouring the emperor in a way approaching deification, making him into a god, homo deus, had found its most fertile soil in the eastern provinces, i.e. where Philippi is. In a city like Philippi, this would have meant that every public event uh, and much else within its boundaries took place in the context of giving honour to the emperor with the acknowledgement that, in this case, Nero was Lord and Saviour. So what we have here then is quite literally nothing less. Oh, sorry, there's a second half to that quote. It was a long quote, but it's even longer. There we are. Which is precisely, he goes on to say, I should stick with my notes, shouldn't I? Which is precisely the place where believers in Christ in Philippi could no longer join as citizens of Rome. Uh, Their allegiance was to another Kyrios, Jesus Christ, before whom every knee would someday bow and every tongue confess, including the citizens of Philippi who were causing their suffering, as well as the emperor himself, as we've seen. The Philippian believers in Christ were thus citizens of a greater dominion, and their allegiance was to another Soter, whose coming from heaven they awaited with eager anticipation. So what we have here is nothing less than a revolution. Quite literally, the God of Israel, through his son, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, has usurped the power of the nations. Every Roman here would hear a challenge to the authority of emperor and empire, or rather a claim that there is now a new, higher Lord, a greater authority, a God who is no tribal deity or one amongst many warring gods, rather that in Jesus Christ, God reigns over all human despots and dictators, and to him they will give an account. A coup d'etat has taken place. The coup d'etat of the crucified one who has risen. And it's really important that we remember that the Jesus Christ, who is exalted to the highest place, is still 
the crucified Messiah. He was crucified by a collusion of Jerusalem and Rome and now reigns over both, but does through via the cross. So this is not just a coup d'etat over political authority, it's a coup d'etat of the heart. Because as we saw earlier, a hope which does not deal with the fundamental system error in the human heart without doing away with human beings entirely, finds it hard to offer hope to humanity and to the higher world. But the claim of the cross and the empty tomb is that human evil will end and that the spirit already has hundreds of millions of hearts under renovation as we speak. So why then, we might ask, if Jesus is sovereign over all the world, over, has dominion over all, why don't we sort of see it showing up in the headlines? Why are wars still waged? Why do pandemics still rage? And why do famines still threaten millions? Well, a, a very simplistic answer to a very complex question is that this revolution is still in the making, meaning that Jesus' reign or lordship is both now but also not yet. As Gordon Fee writes again, believers in Christ are both already and not yet. Already they know and own him as Lord of all. Not yet have they seen all things made subject to him. Here then they are reminded of who and whose they are, glad followers of him who is King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom at God's final wrap-up every knee shall bow to pay him the homage due his name. And as we await the final wrap-up, because the revolution is still unfolding, we can't afford to sit on our hands. As N.T. Wright says in this passage in Philippians, What is said of Jesus, as we've heard already, echoes remarkably what was being said in the imperial ideology of the time about Caesar. Later in Philippians, in a sudden, I just love his wording here, in a sudden blaze of Christological colour, in other words, in a sudden blaze of language about Jesus, he then builds on this to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, Saviour and Lord, and that he now has the power to bring everything in subjection to himself, including the very composition and nature of human bodies, and I'd add, human hearts and that his people are now a colony of heaven remember philippi colony of the romans well amidst them is the colony of heaven as Wright puts it an advance guard of the project to bring the whole world under the sovereign and saving rule of israel's god we therefore have a job to do and a story to tell both to our neighbors near and far and to those in positions of power. But in doing so, we must remember that we follow after the one who himself did not grasp at power, who made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant, sacrificing himself even unto death on a cross. Christ never reigns at the highest place except as the one who humbled himself, made himself nothing and gave himself in love for the world. So this means too that as, as the church, as followers of Jesus engage in the world, in this revolution, we do so in humble self-giving service. We do not become de facto lords. Jesus said, 
elsewhere in the Gospels that the rulers of the nations lorded over their subjects, but it's not to be like that with you. And he also says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. You could read that as in the same spirit that the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so we go to invite others into this revolution, a revolution via repentance, faith, hope, and as we will discuss in the final two parts of this series at Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, through love. And like those of old who built cathedrals, we may not see the finished product or even the unfolding of the design of God's kingdom, but somehow in a mysterious way we don't understand, but for which we have hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Our hope is that we will rise again to see the final glorious product in the new creation where the throne of God descends from the highest place so that God may then rule amongst his resurrected people. To summarize quickly as we close, our hope then lies not in earthly politics or politicians or human progress or even the idea of us ascending to human deity. Instead, we have a crucified king who is the Lord's true Kyrios, Soter, and Theos, true Lord, true Saviour, true God, and also the true Homo Deus, the God-man. In Christ, we have one who descended to be like us and to solve the problem of evil once and for all by taking evil onto his shoulders and into his very divine life, leaving it dead and buried in the tomb. We have in Jesus one like us, who precisely because he himself had stared down and overcome evil, was able to be exalted to the highest possible position, given the highest possible name, without that power corrupting him and causing harm to humanity. Rather, we have in Jesus one who came to bring healing to humanity, its heart, and indeed healing to the nations. Because the great genius of this hope revolution that emerged from the first Easter and which we continue to remember each Easter now is that Jesus has dealt with that fundamental system error in the human algorithm as well as the way that that error has infected the whole data system of the human race and in fact human society, human power structures, uh, human bureaucracies, other human built and infected Systems. Furthermore, Easter promises a final fix to those system errors in nature itself, which while now groaning as if in the pains of childbirth, will one day give birth to a new creation, liberated from bondage to death and decay, as we've heard. This hope promises to bring not just this pandemic, but every pandemic to an end, to actually end famine, plague and war. It promises to end not just current food shortages, but all food insecurity. It promises to end wars and rumours of wars and to once and for all hold those uh, to account despots and dictators in every corner and level of society, from the war room to the boardroom to the back room to the bedroom. Not by the triumph of homo horaeus or homo Oh, oh, no more us, but by the triumph of the true homo deus, Jesus 
of Nazareth. And so Easter invites us to join the revolution or perhaps to rejoin the revolution because we're easily drawn aside by smaller things, whether they be this shaped, the shape of rugby ball, or similar. It's a revolution fought not with Stinger surface-to-air missiles, Bushmaster trucks, or weapons of any earthly variety. It's a revolution, the weapons of which are faith, hope, and love, of goodness, of kindness, of gentleness, of prayerfulness, blessing instead of cursing, turning cheeks and beating our swords into plowshares. It's one with the guerrilla tactics of good deeds and good news, carried out under the cover of the darkness of a world where hope has dimmed, but which bring light into that very darkness. So what's your place in the revolution? You can enlist this morning to join with Jesus in his hope revolution, in his resurrection revolution, a revolution of love and good news. Will you sign up? Maybe you've signed up already. But maybe this morning's a moment to sign up afresh. To put your name on the list and your hand on your heart. But let me warn you, it's not going to be easy. There are casualties in every revolution. Even the hope ones. Just look at the cross. Jesus said to his followers, take up your cross daily, come follow me. As we go into the world to bring faith and hope and love, that might mean self-sacrifice, a high price, a hard road. But we know how the story ends. And we know that in the end, Jesus wins. And God will reign forever and ever. Amen. We're going to sing another song. Maybe the musos would like to come up. While we do, maybe that challenge can ring in your ears. Will you sign up for this, this revolution? Will you sign up afresh? Take just a moment to pray and let God speak by his spirit to you. Maybe you've never signed up before. Maybe this is all a bit kind of new and even a bit weird, but something about it is compelling. You feel like this tap on the shoulder to say, oh, I don't know about all of that, but if it's real, I want to be part of that. Or maybe you've signed up before, but today you've got to stop thinking small 
and start aiming higher. If you're comfortable doing so, would you stand with me as we sing this song? And then afterwards, if, if something's really pressing on your heart, we will have members of our lead team down here, members of our pastoral team, I'll be down here. Come, speak to us. We can pray with you or just talk with you. Or you can talk to us. But what I'd encourage you to do is make, you know, if you're feeling that kind of sense of being moved this morning, perhaps by God's Spirit, make afresh your stand to stand with Jesus.